Matthew chapter 26 verses 26 through 56 verses 26 through 30. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of thine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Burkett notes, Immediately after the celebration of the Passover follows the institution of the Lord's Supper, in which observe one, the author of this new sacrament, Jesus took bread. Note thence that to institute a sacrament is Christ's sole prerogative. It is the church's duty to celebrate the sacraments, but she has power to make none. This belongs only to Christ. Observe, too, the time of the institution, the night before his passion. The night before he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. Learn, thence, that it is very necessary, when sufferings are approaching, to have recourse to the table of the Lord, which affords both an antidote against fear and is restorative to faith. Observe here, three, the sacramental elements, bread and wine, bread representing his body, and wine his blood. Observe four, the ministerial actions, the breaking of the bread, and the blessing of the cup. As to the bread, Jesus took it, that is, set it apart from common use, and separated it for holy ends and purposes. He blessed it, that is, prayed for a blessing upon it, and break it, thereby shadowing forth his body broken upon the cross. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, This broken bread signifies my body, suddenly to be broken upon the cross for your redemption and salvation. Do this in remembrance of me and of my death. Thus the scriptures constantly speak in sacramental matters. So circumcision is called the covenant, and the lamb the Passover. In like manner, here, the bread is called Christ's body, because instituted to represent to all future ages his body broken. Moreover, how could the disciples think that they had eaten Christ's body when they saw his body whole before them? And besides, to eat human flesh and drink blood was not only against the express letter of the law, but abhorred by all mankind. True it is that the heathens laid it to the Christians' charge that they ate human flesh, but falsely, as it appears by the apology made for the primitive Christians, which apology had been false, had they daily eaten the flesh of Christ in sacrament. The very heathens owned it a thing more detestable than death to eat human flesh, and more to eat the God they worship, and to devour him who they adored. Again, as to the cup, Christ, having set it apart by prayer and thanksgiving, he commands his disciples to drink all of it, and subjoins a reason for it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for the remission of sins. That is, the wine in this cup represents the shedding of my blood, by which the new covenant betwixt God and man was ratified and confirmed. Whence we learn that every communicant has as undoubted a right to the cup as to the bread in the Lord's Supper. Drink ye all of it, says Christ. Therefore, to deny the cup to the laity is contrary to the institution of Christ. After the celebration was over, our Savior and his disciples sang a hymn, as the Jews were wont to do at the Passover, the six Eucharistical Psalms, from the 113th to the 119th Psalm. 
Learn, hence, how fit it is that God be glorified in his church by singing of psalms, and in particular when the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is celebrated. When they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Verse 31. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. Burkett notes, Here our Savior acquaints his disciples that by reason of his approaching suffering, they should all of them be so exceedingly offended that they would certainly forsake and leave him, which accordingly came to pass. Learn hence that Christ's dearest friends forsook him and left him alone in the midst of his greatest distress and danger. Observe, too, what was the cause of their flight. It was the prevalency of their fear. Thence note how sad it is for the holiest and best of men to be left under the power of their own fears in a day of temptation. Verse 32. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Burkett notes. Observe here the wonderful lenity of Christ towards his timorous and fearful disciples. Notwithstanding their cowardly flight from him, he tells them that he would not forsake them, but love them still, and, as evidence of it, would meet them in Galilee. I will go before you into Galilee. There shall you see me. And when they did see him, he never upbraided them with their timorousness, but was friends with them, notwithstanding their late cowardice. Christ's love to his disciples is like himself, unchangeable, and everlasting. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Verses 33 through 35. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night, before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. Burkett notes, See here what strong purposes and settled resolutions both Peter and all the apostles had to keep close to Christ. But how did their self-confidence fail them? Learn hence that self-confidence is a sin too, too incident to the holiest and best of men. Though all men forsake thee, yet will not I. Good man, he resolved honestly, but too too much in his own strength. Little, little did he think what a feather he should be in the wind of temptation if once God left him to the power and prevalence of his own fears. Observe farther that the rest of the apostles had the like confidence of their own strength with St. Peter. Likewise also said they all. Note thence that the holiest of men know not their own strength till it comes to the trial. Little did these good men imagine what a cowardly spirit they had in them till temptation put it to the proof. Verses 36 to 44. Then cometh Jesus with them into a place called Gethsemane, and said unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little farther, and fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time, and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. 
And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Bouquet notes, Our blessed Savior, being now come with his disciples into the garden, he falls there into a bitter and bloody agony, in which he prayed with wonderful fervency and importunity to his heavenly Father. His sufferings were now coming on a great pace, and he meets them upon his knees and would be found in a praying posture. Learn, then, that prayer is the best preparation for, as well as the most powerful support under, the heaviest sufferings that can befall us. As to this prayer of our Saviors in the garden, many things are very observable, as one, the place where he prayed, in the garden. But why went Christ thither? Was it to hide or shelter himself from his enemies? Nothing less. For if so, it had been the most improper place, because he was wont to retire thither to pray. John 18.2. Judas knew the place, for Jesus oft-times resorted thither. So the Christ went thither not to shun, but to prepare himself by prayer to meet his enemies. Observe, too, the time when he entered the garden for prayer. It was the evening. Here he spent some hours in pouring out his soul to God. For about midnight, Judas and the soldiers came and apprehended him in a praying posture teaching us by his example that when eminent dangers are before us, especially when death is apprehended by us, to be very much in prayer to God and very fervent in our wrestling with him. Observe three, the matter of our Lord's prayer, that, if possible, the cup might pass from him, that is, those bitter sufferings which were then before him, particularly the insupportable burden of his father's wrath. He prays, if possible, that his father would excuse him from this dreadful wrath, his soul being amazed at it. But what, did Christ then begin to repent of his undertaking for sinners? Did he shrink and give back when it came to the pinch? No, no. As Christ had two natures, being God and man, so he had two distinct wills. As man, he feared and shunned death. As God-man, he willingly submitted to it. The divine spirit and human nature of Christ did now assault each other with disagreeing interests, till at last victory was God on the spirit side. Again, this prayer was not absolute, but conditional, if it be possible. Father, if it may be, if thou art willing, if it please thee, let it pass. If not, I will drink it. Learn hence, one, that the cup of suffering is in itself considered as a very bitter and distasteful cup, which human nature abhors, and cannot but desire and pray may pass from it. Two, that yet oft times the wisdom of God is pleased to put this bitter cup of affliction into the hands of those whom he doth most sincerely love. 3. That when God doth so, it's their duty to drink it with humble submission and cheerful resignation. Not my will, but thine be done. Observe 4. The manner how our Lord prayed, and here we shall find it. 1. A solitary prayer. He went by himself alone, out of the hearing of the disciples. He saith unto them, Tarry here, while I go and pray yonder. Mark, Christ did neither desire his disciples to pray with him, nor to pray for him. No, he must tread the wine press alone. Not but that Christ loved and delighted in his disciples' company, but there were occasions when he thought it fit to leave them, and to go alone to God in prayer. Thence learn that the company of our best friends is not always seasonable. Peter, James, and John were three good men, but Christ bids them tarry while he went aside for private prayer. There are times and cases when a Christian would not be willing that the dearest friend he has in the world should be with him. 
or understand and hear what passes betwixt him and his God. 2. This prayer of Christ was a humble prayer. That's evident by the posture into which he cast himself, sometimes kneeling, sometimes lying prostrate upon his face. He lies in the very dust. Lower he cannot fall, and his heart was as low as his body. And such was the fervor of his spirit that he prayed himself into an agony. Oh, let us blush to think how unlike we are to Christ in prayer as to our praying frame of spirit. Lord, what drowsiness and deadness, what laziness and dullness, what stupidity and formality is found in our prayer. How often do our lips move and our hearts stand still. 3. It was a repeated and iterated prayer. He prayed the first, second, and third time. He returns upon God over and over, plies him again and again, resolving to take no denial. Learn hence that Christians ought not to be discouraged, though they have besought God again and again for a particular mercy, and no answer of prayer has come unto them. Observe also how our Lord used the same prayer three times over, saying the same words. A person then may pray with and by a form of prayer, and yet not pray formally, but in a very acceptable manner unto God. Christ both gave a form of prayer to his disciples and also used one himself. Observe next the posture in which our Holy Lord found his own disciples when he was in his agony. They were sleeping when he was praying. Oh, wonderful that they could sleep at such a time. Hence we gather that the best of Christ's disciples may be sometimes overtaken with infirmities, with great infirmities, when the most important duties are performing. He cometh to his disciples and findeth them sleeping. Observe farther the gentle reproof he gave the disciples for sleeping. What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Could you not watch when your master is in such danger? Could you not watch with me when I'm going to deliver up my life for you? What, not one hour? And that the parting hour, too? After this reprehension, he subjoins an exhortation. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation, and superadds a forcible reason. For though the spirit is willing, yet the flesh is weak. Thence learn that the holiest and best resolved Christians, who have willing spirits for Christ and his service, yet in regard of the weakness of the flesh or the frailty of human nature, it is their duty to watch and pray and thereby guard themselves against temptations. Watch and pray, for though the spirit is willing, yet the flesh is weak. Though you have sincerely resolved rather to die with me than to deny me, Yet be assured that when temptation actually assaults you, when fear and shame, pain and suffering, death and danger are before you and present to your sense, the weakness of your flesh will prevail over all these resolutions if you do not watch diligently and pray fervently for divine assistance. Verses 45 through 50. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves, from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. 
Burkett notes, Our Savior, having poured out his soul in prayer to God in the garden, he is now ready and waits for the coming of his enemies, being first in the field. Accordingly, while he spake yet came Judas, one of the twelve, and under his conduct a band of soldiers to apprehend him. It was the lot and portion of our blessed Redeemer to be betrayed into the hands of his mortal enemies by the treachery of a false and disassembling friend. Observe here the traitor, the treason, the manner of how and the time when this treasonable design was executed. Observe one, the betrayer, Judas. All the evangelists carefully describe him by his name, Judas, by his surname, Iscariot lest he should be mistaken for Jude, the brother of James. God is tender and careful of the names and reputations of his upright-hearted servants. He is also described by his office, one of the twelve. The eminence of his place of station was a high aggravation to his transgression. Nay, in some respects he is preferred above the rest, having a particular trust reposed in him. He bare the bag, that is, he was the almoner and steward of Christ's family to take care for the necessary accommodations of Christ and his apostles. And yet this man, thus called, thus honored, thus respectfully treated by Christ, for the looser of a little money, perfidiously betrays him. Oh, whither will not a bad heart and a busy devil carry a man? Learn hence, one, that the greatest professors had need to be jealous of their own hearts and look well to the grounds and principles of their profession. A profession begun in hypocrisy will certainly end in apostasy. Learn, too, that persons are never in such imminent danger as when they meet with temptations exactly suited to their master lust. Covetousness was Jude's master sin. The love of the world made him a slave to Satan, and the devil lays a temptation before him which suits his temper, hits his humor, and it prevails immediately. Oh, pray, pray that you may be kept from a strong and suitable temptation a temptation suited to your predominant lust and inclination. Observe, too, as the betrayer Judas, so the treason itself, with its aggravating circumstances. He led an armed multitude to the place where Christ was, gave them a sign to discover him, and encouraged them to lay hands upon him and hold him fast. This was the hellish design Satan put into his heart, and it has these aggravating circumstances attending it. He had seen the miracles which Christ wrought by the power of God and could not but know him to be a divine person. He could not sin out of ignorance or blind zeal, but the love of money made him do what he did. Farther, what he did was not done by the persuasion of any, but he was a volunteer in this service. The high priest neither sent to him nor sent for him, but he offers his service, and no doubt they were very much surprised to find one of Christ's own disciples at the head of a conspiracy against him. Learn thence that no man knows where he shall stop or stand when he first enters the way of sin. Should anyone have told Judas that his love for money would at last so far prevail upon him as to make him sell the blood of Jesus Christ, he would have answered, as Hazel did Elijah, Is thy servant a dog that I should do this thing? Wickedness, like holiness, doth not presently come to its full strength in the soul, but grows up by insensible degrees. Men do not commence masters in the sort of villainy in any instant. They begin first with lesser, then with greater sin, first with secret, then with open sins. Doubtless, Judas was an old, though secret, sinner. Surely he could not immediately attain to such a height of impudence and so great a degree of stupidity. Hear ye, professors of religion, ye that partake of ordinances, frequent sacraments, 
to take heed of living as Judas did in the allowed commission of any secret sin to the wasting of your consciences and the destroying of your souls. Observe 3. The manner how this hellish plot was executed, partly by force and partly by fraud. By force, in that he came with a multitude armed with swords and staves, and by fraud, he gives him a kiss and says, Hail, Master. Here was honey in the tongue and poison in the heart. This treacherous kiss enhanced his crime beyond expression. O vilest of hypocrites, how durst thou approach so near thy Lord in the exercise of so much baseness and ingratitude, but none sin with so much impudence and obstinacy as apostates. Learn we hence to beware of men. When we see two, two glittering appearances, we may suspect the inside. Charity for others is our duty, but too great confidence may be our snare. There is so much hypocrisy in many and so much corruption in all that we must not be too confident. Observe 4. The time when this treasonable design was executed upon Christ, when he was in the garden with his disciples, exhorting them to prayer and watchfulness, dropping heavenly and most seasonable counsel upon them. While he yet spake, lo, Judas came, and the multitude with him. Judas found Christ in the most heavenly and excellent employment when he came to apprehend him. Oh, how happy is it when our suffering finds us in God's way, engaged in his service, and engaging his assistance by fervent supplication. Thus did our Lord's suffering meet him. May they so meet us. Verses 51 through 54. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew a sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into its place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scripture be fulfilled, that thus it must be? Burkett notes, The rude multitude laying hands upon Christ, the disciples who had remitted their watch, do resume their courage, and are willing to rescue their master if they can. Particularly, Peter draws his sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus, one of the forwardest to lay hold on Jesus. Observe here St. Peter's zeal and sincere love for his Lord and Master. It was in great sincerity spoken, Though I die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. But why did not Peter draw a sword upon Judas rather than Malchus? Perhaps because though Judas was more faulty, yet Malchus was more forward to arrest and carry off our Savior. How doth a pious breast swell with indignation at the sight of any open affront offered unto Christ? Observe here that though St. Peter's heart was sincere, yet his hand was rash. Good intentions are no warrant for irregular actions. And accordingly Christ, who accepted his affection, reproves him for the action. Put up thy sword, for they that take the sword shall perish by the sword. Learn hence that Christ will thank no man to fight for him without a warrant and commission from him. To resist a lawful magistrate, even in Christ's own defense, is rash zeal and discountenanced by the gospel. To a lawful power lawfully executed, there must be yielded due obedience. Observe lastly, our Lord's absolute refusal to be rescued out of his enemy's hands with the reason of it. Did I decline to be rescued by force, as if our Lord had said, I could demand all the troops of angels in heaven to show themselves upon that occasion. But how can this stand with the decree of my Father, with the declarations of the Scripture, with the demonstrations of my mercy, and with the salvation of miserable mankind? Learn, thence, that Christ was infinitely more concerned for the salvation of lost sinners than for his own death and suffering. 
more concerned for our eternal salvation than for his own temporal preservation. Had he been rescued by the power of angels, we had fallen a prey into the paws of devils. Verses 55 and 56. In that same hour, said Jesus to the multitudes, are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and ye laid no hold on me. But all of this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Burkett notes, We had an account of our Lord's apprehension in the former verses. Here, the sad effect of it upon his disciples. They all forsook him and fled. Had this been done by the giddy multitude who followed him for the loaves, it had been no cause of wonder. But for those who had already forsaken all to follow him, who were faithful, though fearful, friends, what an addition to his suffering this must be. No doubt, but the ingratitude of his friends made deeper wounds in his soul than the malice of enemies could make in his body. They that said all to Christ, verse 35, Though we should die with thee, yet we will not deny thee, to hear all of them desert and forsake him. When it came to the push, not a man of them stands by him. Learn thence that the holiest of men know not their own hearts when great temptations and trials are before them, till they come to grapple with them and to be engaged with them. We know not our own strength till temptation puts us to the proof. (laughs) 